so good to be up here. Like Douglas said, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have been down at Midtown today. I'm only a little bummed that I've, I guess I won't get to see him, you know, so we kind of just did our little swap thing. Um, but I also excited that uh, we have Angie Yasa, who was leading worship up here, uh, repping Grace Midtown with me today. Beautiful time of worship. I love um, even just the spirit of worship in this community. That I, I'm, I'm sensing that, that value of worship and of the presence of God um, in this space. And so really, I, I've just been blessed to get to be here already. And even in the, the prayer time, I don't know if you all know this, but you're a team of staff and volunteers prays over this space every Sunday morning before um, the before everybody gets here. And so I got to be here for that and was just ministered to in that space also. Um, so uh, as Douglas said, my name is Rob. I've been at Grace Midtown for about eight years. My wife, Kirby, is the worship pastor at Grace Midtown. We have a little girl named Lalia Rose, who is just over a year and a half old now. And she, um, she's walking and running and talking. And she says, she says, bye-bye, and she does this with her hands, bye-bye, and she, last night when I was putting her down, she said, night-night, night-night, I was putting her down to go night-night, she says, mama, and when I say, say dada, she says, mama, <laughs> mama, I can't get her to say dada, we have a, a, I have a niece named Willow, her cousin, and so she was playing with Willow this past week, and we were like, say Willow, and she's like, Willow, she says, she says like hard names. You can do L's? I, I mean, I didn't know you could make an L sound, and, but she still will not say dada on demand. It's like a joke. Dada, before I can even finish the word, she says, mama, dada, mama. So I think she thinks she's like getting under my skin, which she is, and so that's, that's great. That's great. We're, we, uh, we're pregnant also with our second little girl due in November, so, uh, so life is good. Life is good. Yeah. All right, and, uh, and there's some old friends of mine that are coming in right now. Hey, guys. Um, so uh, th- uh, it's good. I get to see some familiar faces and some, some new faces while I'm up here. Um, so we are continuing this series, the, the Letters to the Churches in Revelation 2 and 3 today. And, uh, and we're going to be talking about the passage to the letter of the church, uh, the letters to the church at Thyatira. Uh, we'll be in, in Revelation 2. When I... I'm really enjoying this series. I don't know if you guys are, if you've been keeping up with these messages the past few weeks. It's been a powerful time for me and for our, uh, our community at Grace Midtown. A few years ago, I, uh, I had the opportunity to visit the, the beautiful town of Talladega, Alabama. Anybody ever been there? Um, I was speaking at a, a youth camp. So I was there for like four and a half days um, at Shaco Springs campgrounds in, uh, just outside of Talladega, Alabama. I was alone. I was with a bunch of people that I didn't really know, but I was coming in to speak. And so they had me in, staying in this little building at the campground. And the first morning I woke up and I'm like, I got to find some decent coffee somewhere around here. That was like mission number one before doing the morning session. And so I got, I got on my Apple app, Maps app, and, and looked up coffee nearby. Okay, there's a place, Daily Grind Coffee Shop, two miles away. So I drive down the road to find, to find Daily Grind Coffee Shop, and I'm looking around this parking lot, and I can't, I don't see a coffee shop. I see, uh, I see a vape shop, I see a CrossFit gym, I see a pawn shop, 
and I see a freestanding Domino's pizza in the middle of the parking lot, just like the building, you can picture it, the Domino's building right there in the middle of the parking lot. And I'm like, I, did they move? Did it close down? Is the, it, is the map app incorrect? What, do we have the wrong address? So I called the number, and I'm um, thinking, you know, maybe, they, maybe they, they moved to a different location. And so, you know, I, I call the number, ring, 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 and someone answers on the other line, Hello? And I was like, hey, I'm looking for uh, the Daily Grind coffee shop. And I, I'm, I, I can't find you guys. I'm following you know, the, my, my map to the address. And she goes, oh, honey, we're still here. And I, I, a sweet-sounding Southern woman. And I said, okay. Uh, I said, well, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm at the address, and I don't see you. I, I, there's a Domino's pizza where it says that your coffee shop is. And she, and she says a sentence that I will never forget to this day, two, two years, three years later, years later, she says, oh, honey, we're in the Domino's. <laughs> I, was, I look up, and there before my eyes, I see what, was not, what I didn't see before, had been there the whole time. The Domino's pizza was, in fact, the Daily Grind coffee shop, painted on the windows, Daily Grind coffee shop. And I go, okay, I'll be right in. Hang up the phone. I go inside, and there's the woman I've been talking to. Hey, honey. I, I go into the Domino's, and, and it's a Domino's pizza that has been renovated, divided down the middle so that the right side is Domino's, and the left side is Daily Grind coffee shop. And, I, and I'm like, this is an interesting layout that y'all have here in this building. And she goes, oh, honey, you know, there's a story here. And so her husband owns the Domino's, and she'd had a dream of opening a coffee shop, and he said, no one comes in here to eat. They just get their pizzas and leave. So I don't need the square footage. Put a wall up. You can have your coffee shop. It's the same tile. It's the same everything on both sides. You're like in a Domino's, but it's a coffee shop, the Daily Grind coffee shop. So we're, we're in Revelation. As you know, we were a few weeks into this thing, and I just want to remind you, give you some context I think it's important to keep, to keep remembering what's happening in this very mysterious, cryptic, um, kind of challenging to read at times letter of Revelation in these, these two chapters that we're focusing on this summer. We've got John the Revelator who is having an experience where the curtain has been lifted and he's seeing what has been there all along but what he had not been aware of up until that moment. He's seeing that there's a throne in heaven, and on that throne is not Caesar. On that throne is not Domitian, who is the emperor most likely at the time, who is killing people who refuse to worship him as God, or at least removing their opportunity to buy and sell and trade in the Roman Empire, which we see some of this symbolism pop up in the following chapters. Domitian, Caesar is not on the throne. One who looked like a lamb who'd been slain is on the throne. Answering the question that the first century church, the church at the end of the first century, had been asking to themselves and to Jesus, is, is this still the way? Because we're getting killed out here. Is it still the right thing to follow the, the, the crucified Jewish man the slain lamb in the Roman Empire because it's not working out so well for us. The greatest threat facing the church at the end of the first century was emperor worship, the worship of emperors. They believed themselves to be uh, 
descent to, to be gods. The, the phrase son of God was one that was assigned to Caesar. And so, so much of the, the New Testament language is subversively jabbing. No, no, Caesar's not the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so calling the church to continue to be faithful to Jesus. And, and this is, but this is what's happening. John is seeing what was there before him, but he did not have eyes to see, hearing words that were already being spoken, but he did not have ears to hear. He's recognizing that the Daily Grind coffee shop had been in the dominoes the whole time. That's why that story works. All right, so Revelation 2, we're going to be talking about the church at Thyatira. Um, now, this is just a warning. This, this passage is not safe for the whole family, um, and if you haven't felt like you've fully been in the book of Revelation yet this summer, congratulations, today is your day, uh, because we're going to get into, this is some dicey territory we're getting into, but I, I believe God has something to say to each of us. Now, here's the thing. Um, this letter was written to specific people at a specific time for a specific reason, like everything in the scriptures. These were real churches, these seven churches, real churches around Asia Minor. Um, but seven being the number of perfection in the Jewish mind also means that there's a message here for all churches at all times. Um, and there's something for us here today if we have hearts that are open, eyes that can see, ears that can hear which is the, the challenge, the question at the end of each of the letters. Are your ears awake? This is the way Eugene Peterson phrases it in the message. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the Spirit speaking to the churches. So, Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now these letters, you guys have probably heard this this summer already, but these, these letters that are written to these seven churches, they're following a template where there's a description of Jesus at the beginning of it, then there's something that they're being encouraged about. Hey, this, I've seen that, you, that you're doing good here. Uh, he's commending them for something. Then there's a challenge, this I hold against you. Then there's a warning, hey, if this doesn't change, this is what's gonna happen. And then finally, there's a promise to the one who overcomes, I will give you this. This happens in each of these seven letters. And this template isn't just something that Jesus made up or that John made up. This was Emperor Domitian's template at the Domitian Games at the end of the first century. He would call the representatives of the city and say, hey, this is what I hold against you. If you don't change this, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna wipe you out. And so Jesus, once again, subverting the ways of Rome, the empire, and saying, I'm going to do what the emperor would never do. I'm going to make a promise to those who overcome and who are faithful. So as we, as we hear this language, know that this isn't just randomly chosen words or sentences, but this is following an, an intentional template, and there's a message. The medium is the message. Um, and, and so Jesus' choice to use this medium is interesting for us. So he's saying, hey, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. You're doing good stuff. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. Here's the challenge. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, uh-oh, revelation, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering 
And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways, of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. That was the warning. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold to what you have already except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, here comes the promise, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, quoting Psalm 2. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How are we doing? Everybody's good? We made it. Okay, Jezebel, bed of suffering, sexual immorality. I mean, like I said, we're in it. This is a passage. This is one of those passages where it was like, sure, I'll take that one this summer. Let's see what Rob has to say about Jezebel. But I got something to say. And I think, like I said, I think God has something to say to us through this very unique passage today. So each of these, these letters actually represent an, an actual church in an actual city in the Roman Empire. Thyatira is the least famous of these seven cities. There's the least known about this city. They were the least well-known church of the list. Ephesus being the most well-known and even kind of the headquarters of Emperor Domitian's you know, operations and all that kind of stuff. So Thyatira was not known for much, but what they were known for was their trade guilds, specifically smelting in copper and bronze. They were a smelting city. Any smelters in the house today? No one has a little side gig smelting some metal, selling it on Etsy? No? Okay, great. So we all are in the same boat as far as how much we know about this sort of situation. Copper and bronze smelting. Specifically, they made coins there in Thyatira. These coins would have had on them pictured the local deity. Each, there was, we know there's just this pantheon of gods worshipped in Rome and Greece. The local deity was the, the patron deity of the bronze trade, known as Apollo Tyrimnius. So on the coin, there would have been a picture of Apollo Tyrimnius and a picture of the Son of God, the Caesar. And so Jesus opens this letter to this city and he says, he says, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. There's a description of Jesus at the beginning of each of these letters, and he pulls from the original list that John sees in Revelation 1. John says, I turned and I looked and I saw, I saw uh, to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, golden sash around his chest, hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, these descriptions, they show up then in the, throughout these seven letters. 
And it's no coincidence that Jesus is saying to the, the smelting town, the bronze town, the copper town, the, the town where people would have, most of the families represented their, the trade that they did was over an open fire. That Jesus says, I'm the son of God. My eyes are like blazing fire and my feet are like burnished bronze. We, we said already the biggest threat facing the, the church across the Roman Empire at the end of the first century was emperor worship. This is the biggest threat against the rising Christianity, this, this movement at the end of the, the first century because Caesar wanted everyone's full devotion and dedication and this Jesus was a threat to Caesar. And the next threat facing this city and this church, the church in this city would have been the people working in these trade guilds being tempted to participate in the religious festivities of the day in worshiping Apollo Tyremnius, the god of smelting, <laughs> and to participate in, the, in all the festivals that come with that. Now, you need to imagine, it's the beginning of a new smelting season, let's say, and there's a festival to worship the god Apollo Tyremnius and, and hopefully have a favorable year, and so there's going to be some explicit uh, acts and words of worship to this God, and so you're, you're a follower of Jesus, and you're like, well, you know, I don't want to worship a, a false God. I, I worship Jesus, but, you know, if I, I also don't want to alienate myself from the community, and, and this is going to be bad for business if I'm not at this event. Like, I need to be there for the thing, and so maybe I can just, like, I can blend in and sort of, like, be at the party but not partake fully or something, you know, and so it's kind of like, it's it's like, the, the, it's like the, bit, the company Christmas party where like everyone's gonna get a little drunk but just be there, you know, and it's fine or whatever the thing is. I don't know what to compare it to in our day. So I'm just gonna get, you know, but they're also, they're probably gonna sacrifice some food to the gods and so like if I don't eat, that seems rude. So I'll just eat a little bit but like it's fine because I know that I don't mean it and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not personally worshiping these gods by eating the meat. Oh, and there'll probably be some temple prostitutes there because that's just as part of the deal. But like, I'm not gonna be a part, that, that'll just be happening over here. But then my boss is gonna be there and he's gonna be like, are you not a team player? And I'm like, I don't know. And so, I, do, do, are you with me? You, you, you see there's the, the slippery slope of, of compromise. In Revelation, the book of Revelation is written with a primary purpose to call the people of God at the end of the first century across Asia Minor, to continue in faithfulness to Jesus. That's the purpose of what we're reading here, faithfulness to Jesus. And the church in this city at this time is dealing with some really specific stuff that's challenging their faithfulness to Jesus. Now, there's also some other things going on here that's it's not fully clear. The woman Jezebel, you're tolerating this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. We'll get to some of that in just a minute. Satan's so-called deep secrets. So there's some other specific contextual things taking place in the community itself that are threatening the people's faithfulness to Jesus. But we need to be in touch with 
What was the problem this church was facing so that we can understand what is Jesus saying to the problems we're facing? What's threatening my faithfulness to Jesus? It's probably different. (laughs) Probably. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're probably not being tempted to worship the patron deity of smelting as your primary temptation in your life right now. But what is threatening our faithfulness to Jesus? Because God is after our hearts. That's what we're going to see in this passage today. That's what we're seeing across this whole summer. God is after your heart. He wants your heart. And all of this challenging language is is to that end. I want your heart. And so there's, the the people of the church are are left, you know, they're having to decide, how am I going to relate to the world and to my context? And there's several different perspectives that are arising. One group would say, hey, you know, God knows my heart. So I, he, he knows that, yeah, I might be doing this or I might be saying this. I might also, like, on the surface be worshiping Caesar so that I can buy and sell and trade and I gotta make ends meet, you know? Or I might also be paying homage to Apollo Tyrimnius or participating in these festivals to whatever degree. Um, but God knows my heart, so it's okay. Or there's the group that would say, hey, yeah, I, I'm, I compromised there, but there's grace. There's grace. Or yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to compromise here, but there's grace, so I'm not gonna feel bad. I'll ask for forgiveness rather than permission, you know? I'll pray about this tomorrow <laughs> because there's grace. So it's kind of that. And this is a challenge throughout the whole New, New Testament. Shall we let sin increase so that grace can increase? This is Paul's question in Romans. He says, no. But this is the, the paradox of, of grace is that it does increase. Like grace actually does increase. Do you need more grace today? Okay, he gives more grace. This is what scriptures tell us. Grace actually does increase. If you, whatever you need, it's there. But the challenge now of discipleship is to not use our freedom to indulge the sinful nature, as Paul says in Galatians, but to use it to serve one another in love. You're free. You are free. Now how will you use the wealth of grace. So God knows my heart, maybe one argument, hey, there's grace, maybe another argument. There appears to be a group that even would say they felt so impervious to the powers of evil because of the victory of Jesus that they could just explore all of all sorts of occult, magic, sorcery, Satan's so-called deep secrets because, you know, it can't touch me. I've got the blood of Christ, which we would know that's, that's foolish. And Maybe there's even some who are going, hey, there's something to be gained here. You know, maybe not be explicitly like Jesus spirituality, but, but, but you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's helpful to me in this way. And so there's this some kind of secret occult wisdom taking place in the community. Looks like it's tied to this Jezebel character. Now, enter Jezebel. What is going on here with this name, this word that's being used? So we know that Jezebel, this is a reference, an Old Testament reference in, in This was, Jezebel was an actual historical person, the wife of King Ahab, and she is responsible, it is thought, for bringing Baal worship, the worship of Baal, into the nation of Israel and Judah, which was a big deal. This was like a major Old Testament false god and caused a lot of destructive issues for Israel. She was was an, an antagonist of Elijah, tried to have him killed, um, and 
the, when you read her story in the Old Testament and read commentary as there's kind of throwback on her throughout the scriptures, there's this sense of um, seduction and sense of um, sorcery and adultery. Or this, is this language that's used about her actions and even sort of the energy or the spirit or whatever that's at work in her, the character of Jezebel. So for whatever reason, Jesus is using the word Jezebel, alluding to this real person from the Old Testament, to talk about somebody. Is this an actual church member? This is strong language. If Jesus is like, that Jezebel, (laughs) referring to someone in this local church, maybe that's what the scholars are kind of divided on this. Maybe that's actually what's happening, that there's a literal person and Jesus is referring to her as Jezebel because there's a similar temptation. She's, she is, um, is seducing, in a way, members of the, the local church to abandon faithfulness to Jesus for some occult practices and even some literal sexual immorality with her or other people. There's, and, and we had to understand that the, when sexual immorality is referenced in the New Testament, this was like, it kind of came with the territory of religion in their context, in the Roman Empire. And so there's a calling out of and away from these practices for the people of God. Whatever specifically is happening here, Jesus is clearly not okay with it and has a strong challenge to this, what's taking place. So whether this is, this is all, uh, or whether some of this is, is literally talking about a person, there's definitely some symbolic language here throwing her on a bed of suffering. Uh, I will strike her children dead. We, we have to understand this as symbolic language, children representing the fruit of her actions. I will, I will put an end to this one way or another, Jesus is saying. But will you be faithful to me, follow me, and participate in the constructive work I'm doing in the world? rather than these destructive practices. Now, so the, this language, like I said, it's kind of hard to understand. Is, it, is some of it meant to be literal? Is it all figurative? There's definitely similar language later in Revelation, which I want to just give us a little parentheses about some later in Revelation stuff. Can I do that? This is not a series on all of Revelation, of course, but we see some similar language show up in Revelation uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, um, talking about the, the prostitute, This is the language that that John is now using. The prostitute riding on the beast. I told you all, not safe for the whole family. You've been warned. Okay, there's a prostitute riding on a beast. And we're to understand that the prostitute is symbolic of Babylon, the city of Babylon, which is symbolic of a, a cultural force at work in the world already. And the beast is symbolic of empire. Empire itself. So there's this seductive cultural force represented in a city. And the city is representative of kind of the, the, uh, the headquarters of this evil force that is riding on this evil power called empire. This is how we're to understand so much of this, the narrative, the drama taking place in Revelation. What happens, the beast is taken down, Babylon falls, and heaven rejoices at the fall of Babylon 
as the city of God, the garden city comes down from heaven and rests on earth. And that city of God is also known as the bride of Christ. So there's this, all this symbolic language and it's weird and it's scary and it's beautiful. Why does it matter what's happening? Well, empire is this power at work in the world in Rome, in Babylon, in Assyria, in you know, the generations before. And it, it's at work in our day too. It's been at work throughout human history. And it's an engine that seeks to take over the world and it rides over the backs of human beings created in the image of God for the sake of others being in power. This is the dynamic that's being called out here. In the city, Babylon, the prostitute riding on the beast of empire is the seductive force promising wealth and luxury and excess and pleasure to those who would come and commit adultery with her. Once again, symbolic language. What's the, what's the problem here? Because I mean, I live in, in a city, y'all live, we're, we're, just, we're in a metro area. We have all the nice things that come with sort of civilization. There's good restaurants or what, you know, daily grind coffee shop and a Domino's, whatever, you know, floats your boat. When I think about living in the city, I tend to just think about like restaurants and coffee shops and, you know, places to go on walks and stuff, parks, good stuff. But the city also does represent um, a temptation to consume and indulge and miss Jesus um, while chasing the promises that the world offers. Hey, this will satisfy you. Now, what's so wrong and what's so evil specifically about the, what we're talking about here? I'm going to make this quick because we have more to talk about. Um, there's this list in Revelation 18, verse 11, uh, as Babylon is beginning to fall, it says the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys her, their car- cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and carriages. That all sounds like pretty good stuff, minus the ivory, which we know you can't do that anymore. But everything else is like, give me some citron wood. That sounds awesome. But the last thing in the sentence is, and human beings sold as slaves. There's a call out in Revelation on the atrocity of human slavery. And the engine at work, promising luxury, wealth, pleasure, excess, riding on the on the empire, the energy of empire that brings power to those who have the opportunity to seize it. Some become powerful and rich and many others get chewed up, spit out, and destroyed. And N.T. Wright says about this passage, he says, here's the, the, the challenge here is that false gods, that's what we're talking about, the, the worship of empire, the worship of of wealth, luxury, excess, pleasure. Often we don't realize that we're worshiping things when we are. It says the, the, the challenge with false gods is they, they, they always require sacrifice and ultimately human sacrifice. 
And the promise of Revelation is there's going to be a day when the machine that sacrifices humans made in the image of God so that others can prosper, that that machine will be destroyed. And that a garden city where all can thrive and flourish, that will be our reality. And that's why the practices of Babylon aren't allowed in the New Jerusalem. And anyone who would want to continue those practices, they're not allowed in the New Jerusalem because it's a city where all may live. Is this making Revelation even a little bit like, hey, I think I could get down with this. I was a little scared to read it, but okay, great. It's still scary. I mean, the language is nuts, but a deeper dive reveals some stuff. So what's the deal with Jezebel? I think the same challenge comes to them and comes to us, and it's this, that the enemy entices and tempts us and promises us luxury or, or wealth or power or pleasure or here we go, freedom, freedom. But the tables always get turned and what the enemy promises will bring freedom always ends up bringing slavery. And Jesus is committed to your liberation. That's what's taking place here. This has been the case since the garden. This is what the serpent says. Hey, surely you won't, you won't die. God's holding out on you. You'll be free. And they become slaves. And so Jesus is, is, he is more committed to our freedom than we are. And he's challenging, he is, he is hell-bent on the, the church at Thyatira's freedom and willing to use challenging language to get that message across. get to the promises. So Jesus says, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. He's saying, hey, to the one who does not commit adultery and give in to the promises of power, I will give power to I'll give authority to you. The world promises authority by going about, by running your business this way, by relating to people this way, by taking what you want, by manipulating, by being opportunistic with an unjust system because you're on the other side of it. And Jesus says, hey, to the one who overcomes, who doesn't play by the games of the world around you, I will actually give you what you want. You want influence. You want authority. You want power. Power is not a bad thing to have. It's a bad thing to worship. It's a bad thing to chase after. But Jesus actually promises power to those who chase after him. And so I think this is so interesting he promises authority. Then, then he, um, he says, I'll give you the morning star. This is cool. He says, the, the, the morning star. What is the morning star? I, didn't, I never knew this. The morning star is an actual light that rises in the sky at night, especially in this part of the world. 
the morning star is it's thought that this is actually Venus, is, is, is viewable in the night sky at the, just before sunrise. So you know that the sun is coming when you see the morning star low on the horizon. It's a beacon. The morning star means that the night is about to be over and that the day is coming. It means that the darkness is coming to an end and that the light will soon be here. The morning star is a promise. It means you hold on, hold on. And so Jesus, Jesus is referred to as the morning star in the scriptures. So there's a couple of things that work here. He's saying, I'm going to give you this sense of, of purpose to the one who's victorious. I'll give you a sense of purpose. Rather than conforming to the darkness and the ways around you, I will, I, I will actually put, set you up as a light in the sky telling people, hey, something actually is coming. Something different is on its way. And this is, this is the promise in, in the Gospels. I've, I, I've called you to be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. Not to be hidden under a bowl, but to be placed up where, where people can see you. To tell the world that there's something greater, something beyond what they've seen, heard, and experienced. Um, he's saying don't settle for the best that the darkness has to offer. Because I, I, have, I have something better to offer you and for you to then offer the world. So there's a message of purpose, of identity. I'll give you the identity that I have for myself, the morning star. And it's a message of intimacy. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna give you myself to a greater measure than you've experienced. So here's what's interesting about these promises and these challenges. Jesus is not, he's not just interested in calling out your, your stuff, your sins, your issues, your failures. He's not just interested in, in getting you. He's not like just out to get you, to get you. Now, now here's the deal. He is, he is after you because he wants you for himself. But he's not after you to punish you. And that's why we kind of, sometimes we maybe avoid these sorts of passages of scripture. Like I, maybe you've got some highlights in your Bible in the book of Revelation, but I doubt you're reading the Jezebel passage over your morning coffee. I just doubt it. I mean, maybe you are, and that's fine. Uh, but you got, like I said, you got to dig a little bit to get to the meaningful stuff here. Jesus is saying, I want you, and I want to give myself to you. That's why, that's why this letter, that's why this matters. And this is what's so great. He's not just, he doesn't just want to call you out for your sins. He wants to talk to you about the, the thing behind the thing. What's the need and what's the longing you're seeking to meet by doing the things that you do, thinking the things that you think, living in the way that you're living, the ways that we miss it? What is, what's the need and what's the longing we're seeking to meet? Because he's actually promising to, to fulfill those things if we will just seek him. I'll give you authority. I'll give you identity. I'll give you purpose. I'll give you intimacy. Now, and I, we can get uncomfortable with maybe some of the like sexual, sexual immorality call-out language that's in here. But what's behind that? It's, it's intimacy. I, I, wanna, I want you to have all of this in me. 
Because this version of that sets you free rather than enslaving you. That's the message to the church at Thyatira. The band can come on back up. So we don't have to run from the one whose eyes burn like fire. He says later on in that letter, I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. Great. Awesome. You want your heart and mind searched today? Anybody? Would you wake up today going, all right, take a look at all. But that, that's, that's, we know, God, you see it all, you know it all. Psalm 139, search my heart, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We know this is, this is the, the posture of devotion and worship of God. He's the one who searches hearts and minds, whose eyes burn like fire. But the fire of God, this is, this is crucial for us today. We see the fire language all throughout the Bible, and it's scary language, right? Because we've been burned. And this is a city and a church full of people who, they've got some burn marks, they've got some scars, they've got some singed eyebrows, because they're smelters. They're familiar with the fire. Here's the message, though. The fire of God is, is there not to destroy you, but to refine you. That's it. They would have gotten that. They know. Their fire is there to refine. They're refining metals with fire all day long. They, they understand. It destroys what was never meant to last, and it refines what is eternal. This is, this is, the presence of God, the heartbeat of God for us today. And so the call today is for us to invite the fire of God to refine us, to reveal the idols, to reveal the, the ways that, that we are missing it. You want to find out what, what idols are in your life? We didn't have time to really get to all this. Quick, I think a quick little filter for us is uh, what has our allegiance, what has our attention and what has our affection most of the time? It's not a guarantee that that's an idol, but it might be. And the more offended you are by words like allegiance being used might reveal a higher likelihood of having an idol in that area. <laughs> are we more allegiant to a political party or ideology or even a nation than we are to Jesus? What has my attention most of the time? Is it my fear? Is it my worries? Is it my anxiety? I was driving here today thinking about this going, God, if I'm honest, the thing that has my attention most of the time is the things that, that I'm worried about. But on a good day, I'm not fixated on what I'm worried about. I'm, uh, I'm able to just relax and enjoy the moment. But it's, I'm not even necessarily thinking about you. Help me. And he's not like mad at me for just having a good day and not thinking, but help, help me. There's a better way to live, to live a life that is, has a focus, is focused on you, Jesus. What has my affection? I'm not withholding affection from God by loving my wife and kids. I'm honoring God by doing that, right? But there's an invitation to affection in Jesus. Lord, Refine me so that I might experience true communion with you 
live a life, the life of freedom that you have designed for me and all of humanity to experience forever. City of God. I'm gonna invite you to stand with us and uh, we're gonna respond in worship with an invitation to just say, God, let the fire refine me. This is a time when you can receive communion as an act of, of, even in this moment, returning to that place of intimacy with Jesus. Uh, I believe we have communion elements down front, or you may have some that you brought in with you. And the band's gonna lead us in this moment that we have left.